And in the first uh, seven verses of Revelation chapter 2 is the uh, first of the seven letters that are involved in chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is not an allegorical letter. It's not, as someone tried to put it, as a metaphysical letter. It is a real letter. It was written to a real church. It was written to a real church in its actual spiritual state of that church. Now, let's be honest. For us, it's very hard to assess a church. To make an estimate, if you like, of its spiritual strengths and its spiritual weaknesses. But the Lord Jesus Christ knows, as he did then, the church at Ephesus and so on through the next, uh, the following, the chapter and chapter 3. And uh, he knows to die. Every fellowship that meets in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows each one intimately. He knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. And he continues to inspect each one. The Lord Jesus Christ knows each and every one of his churches through and through. And he knows us here today. As he knows the church reigned at Market Street and other uh, local churches as well. This letter sent to the church at Ephesus was very, very relevant to them in their day. Very, very relevant and applicable to their situation. But it's also relevant for us today and our situation today, both as a fellowship of the body of Christ and each one of us as individual believers in that f fellowship. It starts off, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things said, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This letter is addressed to the angel, or another word that you could have there is messenger. Today, it would be addressed to the pastor, or to the elders of the church, who were in that situation. The man... All the men, with God's authority, concerning the church. Now, when you look back at the pedigree of this church in Ephesus, it is amazing. First of all, the church was founded by the Apostle Paul. And uh, it tells us in Acts 20, 31... Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn you, everyone, night and day with tears. Paul, the apostle, labored in the church at Ephesus for three years. 
It tells us in Acts 18, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. And there at Ephesus was Apollos brought to a true understanding of his faith there in Ephesus. And of course, a, a godly couple that lived there, we discover in Acts 18.26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, this is Apollos, of course, who when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took, him to one, took unto him and expanded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Priscilla and Aquila, what a wonderful couple to have in your church. To have someone come and start preaching and then take them to one side and say, you've got this wrong. But this is the way. What a blessing. So there was Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, also, of course, after this, uh, Timothy was a pastor there. It tells us in 1 Timothy 1.3, And I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The Apostle John lived at Ephesus. Do you imagine in those days if they had the technology? Think of the latest sermons that you could listen to. You could go online and listen to Paul. You could go online and listen to Apollos. You could go online and listen to John. You could go online and listen to Timothy and no doubt others as well. I think it's true to say that the church at Ephesus was certainly a prominent church and one very well known. And indeed, <coughs> one so very, very well thought of. Of course, one must be very, very careful about putting too much on big churches, particularly with big names at the top. Remember that the best of men are just merely men at best. We must never, ever idolize a preacher. We must never worship a pastor or the ability of preachers and pastors. Now, Ephesus was the largest city in this area of Asia. It was a very wealthy city, and it boasted a magnificent temple dedicated to Diana. Indeed, this temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church right here in Ephesus. And he is holding the seven stars in his right hand. In verse 16 in chapter 1, And he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. He's walked in the midst of, of the seven golden candlesticks. Seven stars in his right hand 
maintain the spiritual life of the church. You see, the Christian church should be a glowing light to people around. And the question is, for every one of us, do we or are we a glowing light to people? Do we shine for the gospel? Do people notice anything different about us? You see, Christ holds these stars. And it is he who sustains and enables the light to shine. He holds us. He walks with us. And we really need to know that, don't we? He walks with me. He talks with me a long life's narrow way because of the pressures and the situations that we have to face and go through. And you see, it tells you, I know, verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou hast not bear them which are evil and that thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows their works. He knows all that they do. And notice how he begins with a commendation. He knows. He knows us. He knows all our actions, all our plans, all our thoughts. He also knows what we do and the motives in which we do it and how we need to encourage one another. We live in a godless world. We are, in this country, a minority. I'm talking about evangelical Christians now. We need to encourage one another. There's no place for attacking or anything of that. We need to encourage one another. You see, Ephesus was a sound church. Now, if they had it in those days, it would have been prominent in the Evangelical Times holiday supplement. You can imagine a conversation, can't you, to to, to, two people. Oh, this year I'm going to have two weeks in Ephesus. Oh, you'll be fine. Good church there. They even use the Greek received text. And you know, they're still using Christian hymns. You won't get any of the modern stuff there. They're solid. You can rely on the preacher. And they're a good church. I'm going to Ephesus for my holiday. It would seem. It was a laboring church. They were doing things. And they were a persevering church. It was a church that they had a zeal for pure doctrine. What a need there is for that today the inroads of liberalism into the church, the inroads of easy believism and some of the aspects of new evangelicalism. Those who had claimed to be apostles, they visited the church and the church had seen through them, seen them straight away for what they were, false apostles. These apostles, of course, were false in their calling, false in their doctrine, and false in their teaching. 
Do you remember back in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, hey, Paul had given a warning, hadn't he? He'd given a warning to the Ephesian elders of what to expect. Let me read to you verse 20, Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that out of my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn you, every one, night and day with tears. You see, Paul was a true apostle. He had the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he labored there. I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. What a burden that man had for the church. What a burden that man had for the truth of the gospel. I wonder when was the last time any one of us wept over the state of the church in our country today. How much of a burden have we for the church, for the truth of the gospel, for the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ? And it's not easy, is it, to persevere? Particularly in face of that. I, I, can, find, I can take hostility, you know, because you've got something to go back to. But it's just a sheer apathy. You know, I remember just one incident a few weeks ago in Canterbury, one of the preachers, there's an old chap walking by, and he said, Sir, he said, you know you're going to die soon, don't you? He said, yeah. Do you know where you're going? No. Do you want to know? No. And off he went. Apathy. What can you do? And you get it so much, don't you? You go knocking on the doors. I'm um, watching the telly or they're doing their hair or they're doing this. They're just not interested in the gospel. And you almost long for someone to want to slam the door in your face. At least they've got a reason. Apathy. It can be so desperately unhelpful. But he goes on to tell them, hey, they've born and has patience for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. Again, the Lord is given a commendation to the church there at Ephesus. Remember what Paul said in the book, his letter to Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And these believers in Ephesus were prepared to bear reproach for the Lord's sake. And for us, hey, we need to ask the Lord for his gracious help to bear patiently. And it's not easy to bear patiently the burdens that are placed upon us, whatever those burdens may be. Do you ever get weary? I do. Do you ever get the temptation to take the easy way out? 
I do. And I sometimes have to ask myself, am I at ease in East Sussex? And are we at ease in East Sussex? But what the Lord is saying and what the Scripture is saying and what we would seek to encourage, and we need to encourage, we must not give in. We must keep on going. But, and of course this is where we, sadly we come to the negative part, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. What a tragedy. Nevertheless, or yet there's something. And this is where the Lord Jesus Christ puts his finger on the problem of the church at Ephesus. They have left, or you could say they have forsaken their first love. There's a difference, isn't there, between left and lost. You could leave something on the bus, but someone may hand it in and you can get it. You left it on the bus and you may get it back. But if someone takes it and doesn't hand it in, it's lost. It's gone forever. And here he's told them they've left their um, first love. They haven't lost it. They have left their first love. This church has got very serious heart trouble. They're beginning to decay. A little bit here and a little bit there. Now, I'm sure most of you are very familiar with the, river, the Cookmere River. And if you go down to the mouth of the Cookmere River at the bottom of the Seven Sisters, walk down the path, and you look at the river where it goes into the sea or into the channel, it's a, ter- it's a very strong current, isn't it? Very strong. And you know what? I, I didn't know this, but... Um, the weird word Cookmere actually means fast-flowing water. Now, if you go a few miles up the stream and you come to Mitchell and Priory, you can, it's a very gentle little stream flowing along there. And apparently, the Cookmere River is about 28 miles long. Now, if you go to the very, very source of it, there are a number of little tributaries that feed in to become the Cookmere River. Now, you could stop at one of those tributaries, the Cookmere River. You could easily build a dam and stop the flow of the river. But you couldn't do down there at Cookmere, at the mouth of the river, because it would be too wide, the current would be too fast, and you wouldn't have a chance. It's the same with our faith, you know. We can slip and slip and slip and slip and at those first slits we either need ourselves to get our grip the Holy Spirit to prompt us or someone a brother and sister to come along inside you're letting this go, you're letting that go and stop it you can stop it at the beginning but once it gets to a certain stage, it's almost like a, a flowing river, it just keeps going and it's virtually impossible to get back You see, our devotion should be characterized as a new believer. Just go back, I don't know how many years it may be for you, 
Go back to when you were first converted. When first you suddenly realized that you were a child of God, that your sin had been dealt with forever. There was no condemnation. I am in Christ and nothing can take that away. There was that desire, wasn't there, to pray, that desire to read the scripture, to desire to talk to people. Let me tell you what God has done for me. I trust that was true for you years ago. I hope it's true for today. Sadly, though, it's often just we tend to get less enthusiastic, don't we, as we get a bit older and a bit long in the tooth, maybe. Think of newlyweds, if you can go back that far. Couldn't do enough for one another, could you? Those first few weeks together, learning to live together, finding this eight, finding that eight, doing this, doing that, doing the other. It was, it was wonderful because you were with the one that you love, the one that you want to spend the next 50, 60 years with, if God so allays. But isn't it easy as the pressures of life come in, the mortgage and the electric bill and the cost of living and the threat of redundancy and the problems with the children? You know, it can sometimes, the, the gloss goes off, doesn't it? so easy to take one another for, love, for granted. One should never take people's love for granted. Our loved ones, and especially the Lord Jesus Christ, his love for us. Because love, of course, is the first fruit of the Spirit. And what we need, and we need each other to, and this is where we need to encourage one another in this. We need to encourage a, to keep a strong and ardent affection for the Lord. And if, if our love to the Lord has grown cold, then let us then repent and ask him to forgive us and ask him to restore us, to return to our first love. As he goes on, doesn't he, in verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent to do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Remember what you've fallen from. You know, years ago, hey was our zeal. Hey was our obedience. Hey was our self-denial. And the command is repent. Be deeply humbled before Almighty God. What does the Lord require of us? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Is there a need in areas to repent, to reform? And then to resume. It's always tempting to think, isn't there, that there's no outward form of decay. You know, some of the healthiest looking people could be riddled with disease. And you wouldn't know it from the outside. We may be those in our past, we have resisted false teaching. We have 
resisted the false prophets. But it never goes away, does it? There's always another movement or another individual or another guru. And these days on the internet, the people that follow the gurus on the internet. A clear warnings given here to Ephesus. The candlestick will be removed. Now this is not a reference to the Lord's second coming, but to his coming judgment. And what of Ephesus today? The church of Ephesus is in ruins. Just a load of old stones in the ruins of, I don't know if anybody even knows where it is, just a road of old ruins, like you can see in all sorts of places anywhere. And I'm sure you do. I know churches that once preached the gospel, that had a thriving Sunday school ministry, a vibrant evangelistic ministry, and they there in spiritual ruin, or they're closed. And those that are left sometimes just go through the motions and nothing else. One of the saddest things that the Lord can ever bring upon a church is a famine of the hearing of the word of God. But this thou hast and thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were a sect of Gnostics. Another name for them would be Balamites, and they're found in Revelation chapter 2 and 14 and 15. They were anti the moral law. They would happily eat food sacrificed in heathen temples and indulge in fornication in all manner of things. They had no concern for their conduct. They were people, you see, with special knowledge. And they were able to lord it over people who were, didn't have that knowledge. They had a spiritual superiority. Superiority. They'd received special revelations. Perhaps you've met them today. First and second class Christians. We have them today. The multi-faith movement. People will do all sorts of things because they think the Lord has told me. People are classed as second class Christians because they don't have the same revelations that I have. We must fix our eyes firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that we do, all that we say, all that we think. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear. Was the church at Ephesus listening? Are we listening? There's an echo there, isn't there, from the Gospels. And it occurs in each of the seven letters in the, in the Revelation. Hearing is placed before the promise. And we need to be overcomers. And an overcomer is simply a Christian who is faithful. A faithful Christian is an overcomer. We must carry on steadfast in the faith and faithfully confess Christ. 
for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the Christian life is a continual fight against sin and tribulation. And overcomers are not a spiritual elite, but they are true believers whose faith has given them victory. And there comes the promise, that allusion there to the Garden of Eden. We will partake the fullness of eternal life. The tree is in the paradise of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And surely that this paradise, this garden, expresses the totality of the sum of God's blessedness to us. We do live, as I said earlier, we do live in a troubled world. And we do have our own particular troubles and concerns, worries, doubts and fears and all that. But let me remind you, and I'm sure you don't need reminding, if you are a believer this morning, you are safe in the arms of Jesus. Absolutely, totally secure in the arms of Jesus. There is nothing and no one can take your faith away from you. We have an assurance of eternal life. Surely, with what lies ahead in glory, the bit that the Lord Jesus Christ asked us to do before then is really just nothing in comparison, is it? Nothing in comparison. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be perfect? What it would be like not have to worry about any capping out a stick or any death aids, no arthritis, no cancer. Absolute perfection. And there with the Lord Jesus Christ, our Father on the throne. Let's pray together, shall we? Our dear, gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful prospect there is for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the wonder of assurance, the wonder of heaven, and the glorious future that awaits each and every one of us who trust you and love you. Help us, Lord, to know that wonderful assurance in our own hearts when the dates and fears and worries come in remind us of who we are in Christ and remind us once again of the wonderful promises that we find in the scriptures and the wonderful blessing of glory that awaits to help us Lord we pray in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen Our last hymn is number 777, Jesus and 
it shall, shall it ever be, a mortal man ashamed of thee, ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days. 777.
unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.